Who's Megan the Stallion? I believe she is a horse that's about to win a triple crown in the Kentucky Derby. Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are doing part two of Wayne Adam Ford. And where did we leave off? So we left off last week with Torso Girl being found in the slough. So she was headless and limbless and had no ID. So they named her Torso Girl. Ah, uh, yeah, Torso Girl. Why don't you go ahead and start us off, Katie? On November 25th, Karen Mitchell, a 16-year-old girl, went missing in Eureka, California. She was last seen leaving her aunt's shop and walking toward the Coastal Family Development Center where she took care of children. The lead investigator on the Torso Girl murder had been beating his head against the wall for a month trying to gain traction on the Torso case. When he learned of Karen's disappearance, he believed that she had been taken by the same person. I actually don't know if if they ever found out if Karen Mitchell was one of his victims. I'm not sure either. I don't think it was ever confirmed. On December 5th, 1997, Wayne Adam Ford checked into a mental health clinic in Eureka, California. The intake interview states that Wayne was suffering from severe depression, describing crying spells, thoughts of suicide, multiple aches and pains, feelings of hopelessness, and insomnia. The eventual diagnosis was that Wayne was suffering from persistent depressive disorder, which can be characterized by narcissistic traits such as exaggerated emotional responses, dependency on others to meet their needs, and using other people to meet their needs. I think you could also have uh, similar characteristics by uh, killing and murdering people. I feel like bring out the paranoia. So I guess my question here would be, uh, if they know this about him, and he says he's had a past with like, mental health issues why don't they just recommend them or bring them to the alert of the police is that like a hipaa violation or unless he is threatening himself or other people then you can't really do anything about it just because he's depressed doesn't mean you can tell people and go to the police otherwise there would be yeah doctors mm-hmm. over just dis- over prescribe everyone depression so you'd have everybody going to jail Yeah, you can't. I mean, you would have to have entire police forces just dedicated to sorting through everyone with depression. I get it. I get it. This guy, I feel like this guy was a little bit more than just depression, though. I think that you assume that even though it's a little more than depression, they're not going to murder four women. The physicians recommended medication for Wayne, but he thought counseling would be the better route, so he made an appointment for December 18th, but never showed up. Counseling is better than medication, but you know what's best? No. Getting high under a tree and not going to counseling. Is that what you did? I'm just guessing that's what he did. No, he probably just didn't show up. He did was your driving. Try to put you in counseling? Are you I admitting seen, hard truths here? I sent a few hours in the lazy boy. So you went to therapy? I have been to therapy. Counseling. Katie, Counsel- please. Yeah, the- <laughs> what is the difference? I don't know. I just was rolling with it. I like how Jake just really. <laughs> It's like, yeah. Ramped you up on that. The same day as his appointment, two profilers from the Department of Justice showed up in Eureka to help in the investigation of the missing Karen Mitchell. They toured the slough where Torso Girl's body was found before heading to the police station to review the Mitchell case. They, like Detective Freeman, believed the Torso Girl case and the missing girl were related. Their initial impression was that the killer was in his 40s, had done it multiple times before, that he did not want his victims found, but had been proud of his handiwork on Torso Girl, so he dumped her body in the slough to be found. How far off were they on 
Especially that last part about being proud of his handiwork. I I would say he's not particularly proud of his handiwork, but because he was remorseful, wasn't he? As as much as someone that really has no emotional grasp on the world can be remorseful. I think he was opportunistic. Yes. And said, "Oh, I can put her body here." Yeah, I don't think he really planned for his bodies to be found. I think he just tossed them kind of willy nilly because he 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 was a narcissist. He didn't believe that they were going to find him. He liked the the waterways though, right? He like always used Yeah, like washes away evidence. Everyone knows that. They figured the body was dumped on the weekend, therefore he worked a regular job and was either a resident or a frequent visitor to the area. Were these like any like these just little spots or were these places like people could like fish? Why would he be like why they think he was a regular in the area? Well, they thought he was a regular or frequent visit to the area because he dumped the body in a spot where he thought nobody would find or dumped it in a spot that allowed the body to move to a spot he figured no one would find. So he kind of had to know the area as to where he could drop, drop something off into the aqueduct. Ah, okay. And Torso Girl definitely wasn't found where she was dumped. I know they did a couple tests where they put so things with similar weight in the water from different areas to try to figure out exactly where she may have been dumped from and then search that area for houses or her limbs. I think they could have got one of those Bob the Punching Bag things. They gave him the idea. So they tried a couple times. A couple days it was too rainy. Uh, a couple days the current wasn't the same. And they sort of just dropped him off in very specific places and tracked how long or how how far they would get away in 24 hours. And... That's where they basically tracked down how she got thrown off. And I think it was like an aqueduct spot, like 368 or something like that. But they did actually eventually find that out. California is no stranger to dead bodies popping up along waterways. Certain sections of the 440-mile-long California aqueduct are known dumping grounds for items used by criminals. Stolen cars, knives, guns, and bodies are a familiar sight when the waterways are drained for cleaning. The detectives in the area call it the plea market. Why? Because you can go down there, after they drain it, you pick up a gun or a knife, go back, you dust it for prints, whoever you find, they're copping a plea that day. You think that they're actually going to find prints on a gun that could potentially be sitting in 30 feet of water? For... I'm just saying what the facts are, man. A lot of people took pleas off of knives out of the waterways of California. Okay. I'll trust your knowledge of the plea market. Evidence collection. Evidence collection in California. In the plea market. Yep. On January 29th, 1998, two people cutting wood found an arm floating in the surf. It was dried out and decomposed, but there was still hope that it matched Torso Girl or Karen Mitchell. Further search of the area provided no more body parts, and it wasn't until mid-March when DNA came back confirming the arm matched the torso they had found earlier. So the arm was out in the elements for like two and a half months, and then it took another two months to get the DNA evidence. Was that... All they'd found up to that point that yeah. matched torso yeah. girl. That's it. They had an arm and a torso, and it, it's not quick like it is now. It's it's still not quick. Still not very fast. But this was also back in the day where it was not, you know, readily available per each station or per each county. It wasn't CSI. They didn't all have a lab like that. So it took time. You didn't have anything really same day in this case, like. There, there was the no Morgan, Amazon. 
yeah, the morgue appearances are even always either a day or two later. Uh, analyzation usually takes anywhere from 24 hours to two weeks. Like They're still kind of in that dead period where technology hadn't quite caught up with everyone yet. On June 2nd, 1998, four construction workers from Bakersfield were stopped in the town of Buttonwillow. Around 6 p.m., they reported finding a bloated and nude body of a woman hanging in the steel cable buoys that spanned the aqueduct. She had been in the water for a while, so police were unable to immediately identify the body. This Jane Doe was 5 feet 5 inches tall, had reddish blonde hair, blue eyes, and was approximately 125 pounds. The next day, a description was sent statewide to see if they could get any hints on missing persons or information leading to identification. On June 4th, an autopsy of the Jane Doe was performed. The doctor performing the autopsy noted bruising along her jaw about the size of a dime and a triangular-shaped bruise underneath and along the right side of her neck. Did they have any idea what could cause such a like small bruise, something as small as a dime? They don't, but I think they eventually put it together. Um, actually... They don't at the time have any idea what caused the bruising, but they put it together later on when from the survivors too as to what could have happened. So, Her neck was fractured and bruised as if she had been strangled with something. They did a sexual assault kit and performed swabs in hopes they could match the DNA with the suspect once they found one. To obtain usable fingerprints, the pathologist removed the skin of the hands and soaked it in a chemical solution before placing the skin over his own hand and rolling the prints. So he made, like, Ed Gein gloves out of them? This is common. Is it really? Yeah, this is what they do if you, if you're, like, if you've been dead too long and your skin is kind of shriveled up, they'll do this to rehydrate it. They slough it off or what? They kind of removed the the hand, I thought. I thought they cut off the whole hand and sort of degloved it that way. Yeah, I mean, they just will remove your skin and then they just wear it oh, as well, a she's not going to need glove. this. Cut it off. Slide it off. I mean, it's better to have the... I mean, what's the body going to need her hands for anyway? Yeah, it's better to have her name than her hand still attached. No, I know, I know. I'm just I'm just saying, I didn't know this was a common thing, and I just thought it was creepy at first. I thought this guy made lampshades or something. No, I mean, it's creepy, but it's, you know, common practice. Creepy common practice, but it gets results. And you got to put it over your own hand, or they they make molds I mean, for they, it these we days? Put a, no, they put a glove on, and then, yes, they put it on. You can't. Yeah, it's you hard have to, to roll a fingerprint. So you, you can't just floppy have it floppying around and get a fingerprint on it. You have to have something, some sort of meat in there. On July 29th, sheriffs got back a fingerprint match and were able to identify the body as Tina Renee Gibbs of Tacoma, Washington. She had been a sex worker in Tacoma and later in Las Vegas, Nevada. She was taken out of Nevada. It was at one of the times that uh, he was down there to harass Elizabeth and their their son. He ended up spending like 15 minutes with the kid and then an hour and 45 minutes with Elizabeth and her friends. So, And uh, then was upset when he had to leave and that's when he found Tina. This guy's a real good guy. Yep. On September 25th, 1998, three men towing a cattle trailer pulled over along a gravel turnout to check their truck. It was there that they discovered the body of a naked woman floating in the irrigation ditch that ran parallel to the road. The woman's body was face up in the cold, stagnant water, extremely bloated, and the face, upper chest, and one shoulder were black and swollen. Her stomach was red, almost as if she had been bent or folded in half after her death. The detective showed up and processed the scene for evidence and found about 15 items of interest at the scene. When the body arrived back at the morgue, the pathologist rolled fingerprints and noted the distinct tattoos on the body. 
The autopsy was conducted the next morning, but didn't really offer any information on how the woman may have died. Despite this, police treated her death as a homicide. The prince came back as a match to Lynette Dayton White, who was last seen on September 20th, 1998, when she left her apartment to pick up her paycheck and never came back. There was some su suspicion she may have been involved in sex work, but police were unable to confirm anything. Yeah, I know they were suspicious that someone in her close family was her pimp, basically, and that she went, because they weren't sure how she went missing, because she went literally just to the store and then never came back, and so yeah. nobody knew why, but more than likely, she found a trick there, and that's what happened. She found good old Wayne. Yeah. On October 23rd, 1998, behind a pumping station in Esperia, California, yet another body was found by two guards walking the aqueduct. It was tangled in one of the gates when the guards saw it, but had floated further down the water when police arrived. The first thing they noticed was that the body was missing her left breast. Before the body was transported to the morgue, a coroner's assistant took fingerprints in hopes of finding the identity of their new Jane Doe. They got a match within hours. Patricia Ann Tamez was last seen October 22, 1998, between 1 and 2 p.m., getting into a black 18-wheeler from the corner she was working. On October 28, 1998, the autopsy and a sex kit swab were performed. Pathologists noted hemorrhaging in the whites of her eyes and upper lip, indicating strangulation. The breast was cut away with a sawing motion, but it couldn't be determined whether it was anti- or post-mortem. So this is like four or five vi victims, at least, right, that they've all found similarly uh butchered similarly yeah similarly butchered and put in similar areas are they starting to like catch on now or and... well they they kind of do put out uh all the information a little bit later but yeah they are starting to connect the dots a little bit this is not the first victim but also they're no real stranger to prostitutes ending up in the aqueduct in california it happens I don't know. They, they've said that they find 10 to 17 bodies in that thing a year. Some of them are drowning. Some of them are placed there. Some of them are suicides. So it's all kind of relative. So you can't kill. You can't commit suicide in a place that's high for body counts because you just throw yourself into a body count. I don't think that's what they're worried about. Along with his murdered victims, there are a few known survivors of Wayne Adam Ford's rampage. Their stories may shed a little light on what happened to the deceased victims while in the clutches of Ford. The first victim, only known as Orange County Doe, told police she was working the corner when she approached Wayne at a gas station. Wayne paid her $40 to sit in his truck and watch him masturbate, and she also agreed to oral sex for an additional $35. Why would you pay for two? Like, that's basically two forms of sex, right? It's, it's literally called negotiation. It happens before every transaction, as far as I can tell with these prostitutes, is that Wayne pulls up and asks them if they like to party or will go on dates and then they'll get in the cab and then they'll start negotiating a price for each thing. It's not mm. like it's like, oh, instantly it's 75 bucks and I'll watch you masturbate and then suck you off. It's it's okay. This is what it's going to cost you for me initially getting in here and doing Oh, so it's like 45 40 bucks just for her to get in and this is what he told her it well, was Well, it was 40 be. bucks for her to watch him masturbate and then he's like, "Oh, I really want you to blow me." And she's like, "That'll be an extra 35." He... It's a business. It's not. No, I know. I'm just saying. Like, if you masturbate and then you you're done, you're like, all right, I'm not gonna pay another thirty. Yeah, I don't think bucks. he squirted his goo. I think the goal in his mind was to get her in the truck. Yeah. So if you offer her more money than a normal person would to just watch him masturbate, she's obviously gonna take it and get in the truck. 
I mean, yeah. That's his only concern. And then he wants to keep her in the truck. Yeah. So he's going to say, oh, we should also do this. But we have to go back into the sleeper. It's his predatory system. It's how he gets them in the car. It's how he keeps them in the car. But After she climbed into the black 18-wheeler, she realized Wayne had something different in mind. Wayne ordered her to climb into the sleeper cabin, take off all of her clothes. He forced her to her hands and knees and tied her hands behind her back with one end of a rope and put a noose around her neck with the other. He took another rope and pushed her knees to her chest and tied her wrists and ankles together. He gagged her, burned her breast and vagina with a cigarette lighter, poked her breast and genitals with various sharp instruments, and sat on her face. He then raped her, choking her till she was unconscious, but revived her with CPR four separate times. How did she escape? He let her go. So that wasn't really his... Wait, is his MO that he lets that he normally would like to let him go, but he loses his shit and kills him, and then he has to dump him? Or my, why does he let up some of them go? My guess is that he's not able to bring them all back. Oh, because he's a reviver. Another survivor is Rachel Holt. As a young prostitute working the streets in Santa Rosa, she was picked up by Wayne in the parking lot of a motel on August 23, 1998. She hopped into Wayne's big rig and suggested a spot for them to go for privacy. When they arrived at the secluded parking lot, Rachel took off her pants and went to slip a condom on Wayne. He was unable to get an erection, and when she urged him to relax, he grabbed her breasts and squeezed too hard to be accidental. She brushed it off, and they continued with their parking lot tryst, all the while Rachel was trying to coax Wayne along to get it over with. He got her in the sleeper and told her to bend over, but when she complied, he pulled her arms behind her back and tied a rope around them. Rachel started screaming for help and asking why are you doing this, to which Wayne warned her if she made any noise. Any more noise, he would knock her teeth down her throat. Rachel knew that he was going to get what he wanted, so she gave up the fight almost immediately. Wayne tried to rape her in multiple positions, but still could not get an erection. He screamed at Rachel and threatened her getting more and more frustrated things weren't happening the way he had imagined. He told her to bite his nipples, but she didn't do it hard enough to please him. Put her in another position, but realized her mouth couldn't reach his nipples unless he untied the rope around her neck and hands. In his frustration, he seemed to forget what he was doing and stumbled his way through tying the men's necktie like a gag around her mouth before forcing her to masturbate him and pinch his nipples. Wayne still could not get hard and became afraid that someone would notice his truck in the parking lot by itself. Wayne ordered Rachel to pull her knees to her chest and he tied the rope around her back and neck so he could choke her if she moved. He sat her on the baseboard of the truck and got into the driver's seat, warning her, quote, Shut up, don't scream, don't cry, don't make any noise. Don't make any noise or I will kill you. Every little noise was met with a punch to the groin or a whip with a belt. He drove on, alternating between drinking coffee and masturbating himself or her. Wayne drove for about an hour with Rachel tied up in the front. She remembers her hands feeling as if they were on fire, and after Wayne stopped off the interstate in a spot that he was comfortable with, she asked if her hands were alright, what color they were, and what state they were in. Wayne grunted and said that they were fine. He rearranged the rope holding her and set her back in the sleeper cab, but this time he had no problem staying erect. While he screamed, don't look at me, in her face, he tied neckties around her mouth like a gag and one as a blindfold. Raped her numerous times in whatever painful position he put her in and tied another necktie around her throat that he would hold tight until she lost consciousness. When she would come to, it would be to Wayne giving her mouth to mouth to revive her. This lasted hours and Rachel remembers non-stop crying and sobbing, but nothing seemed to deter him. When Wayne finally had his fill, he calmly allowed her to get dressed, acting as if nothing that had just happened was wrong. Which is like his whole thing, right? 
Yeah, it's how he has acted since his wife's. It's just he doesn't really like women. He just uses them for what he wants and then tries to act like he didn't just pull some major bullshit. Yeah, he always has an excuse for his behavior. When she asked why he'd done it, he showed Rachel a picture of his ex-wife and son. He said that his ex-wife took off with his kid and he was looking for revenge. Began to cry and embrace Rachel in a, quote, very strong human being hug. He apologized for what happened and told her because she had given him a shoulder to cry on, he would let her go. Was it her that said called it a very strong human being hug, or where are we getting that? That's her direct quote. He drove a little way down the interstate, hogtied her, and put her off the edge of an embankment and told her to wait until he drove off so she couldn't see his license plate. Then she could slip the ties and wave down a passing car. As soon as Rachel heard the truck pull away, she quickly slipped the ropes and ran up the embankment. Another truck driver stopped and gave her a ride to the next exit, where she called the police from a payphone outside the Cloverdale Market, 20 miles away from where Wayne had picked her up. That has to be, like, really frightening to even have to flag down another trucker at that point. Yeah, you don't know where you're going to end up. I don't know. It traumatized the truck driver, too, because he talked to police about it, and he was fucked up finding her. When police arrived, Rachel was still clutching the necktie and the rope. The police took her to Sutter Hospital, where she was examined. The nurse treating her told Rachel that she had been a nurse for 175 rape cases, and this was the worst she had ever seen. Fuck this guy. For real, fuck this guy. The exam lasted four hours, and the rape kit later came back as a match to Wayne. Rachel had bruising on her face, neck, and breasts, a large cut on her lip, swelling on both sides of her face, rope burns around her neck, ankles, and wrists, cuts to her outer labia, burns to her inner labia, a fractured wrist, and was unable to move her thumb. At the time Rachel bravely came forward, she told her tale as Sonoma County Doe. So they already had Wayne, uh, Wayne's DNA in the system at the time the test came back, or they linked him to it later on? It was later. Once uh, they started bringing uh, evidence against him, they compared it to the other bodies and the other kits that they had, and it came up a match. Oh, okay. So it was later matched to Wayne. She also, which is crazy, she gave this incredibly accurate sketch to a sketch artist like she told them exactly what he looked like and then later identified him in a lineup uh, ah, nice. after they arrested him and was like yep that, that's that's him and then she can then she actually testified against him on stand and had to get grilled by the uh defendant or the def- uh, defense team she was very was very the defense upset. terrible to her I wouldn't say they were terrible, but after you've relived like a super trauma, anytime someone calls anything you say into question, it's got to be like one of the most hurtful things ever. Like anybody trying to deny that this didn't happen to you or anything probably fucks with someone a lot. And probably kind of infuriating too. Like, Oh, yeah. It fucks with their case too. It makes the jury think that you're horrible. Yeah. In early September 1998, not long after attacking Rachel... Wayne picked up a prostitute named Valerie Rondi in Eureka. He took her back to his grandmother's house where they negotiated $60 for sex. Wayne felt it was over too quickly and asked Valerie to spend a little time there with him. They got along fairly well. He told her stories of his life and childhood, and after a little while he asked her to go on the road with him if he promised to get her back the next day. Valerie agreed, but told Wayne she was a heroin addict and would get sick if she didn't use for an extended period of time, so she had to be back when he promised. When they left the next day, Wayne was talkative and in a good mood. It was until they stopped that night outside Ukiah that things got weird between them. Wayne was sleeping on the top bunk while Val was on the bottom. 
He tried to sneak into the bunk with her, but she told him absolutely no sex without paying. William climbed back into his bunk, and Val could hear him masturbate. The next morning, they made it to the lumberyard in Santa Rosa, where Wayne was to drop off his haul. Val figured this was a stop they would turn around, and she could avoid being dope sick for too long because they would be heading back. As it turned out, Wayne was actually heading further south after this, past Los Angeles. When she found out, Val was stunned and scared, and she definitely didn't want to head south as she was starting to feel the effects of withdrawal and did not want to be stuck in a semi, bumping down the road as the sickness got worse. Wayne assured her that they would be getting her a fix at the next stop so she didn't need to worry. He told her he liked having her as company and pleaded her to stay when he asked, when she asked to be dropped off at the nearest bus station. It seems like if you really wanted her company, you probably should get her her fix or she's not going to want to stay around you. I don't think going to a random area and trying to find a heroin dealer is that easy. Yeah, that's kind of what they found out. Maybe, I guess. I th- I would think truckers could find heroin, you know, all over the place. If truckers aren't usually doing heroin. No, but they got some in the some of their buddies have heroin in their trucks, you know? No, they're probably all doing speed, but oh, they're definitely doing speed. They drove all day and into the night until stopping for the night at a sprawling city-like truck stop where Valerie took a shower and tried to find some dope. She didn't find the heroin she was looking for, so she bought a little something to eat and headed back to Wayne's truck. When she walked in, she found Wayne waiting for her in the bottom bunk, ready for sex. By this time, Valerie was going through withdrawals and refused to have sex with him no matter what. Wayne screamed at her and scared her into silence, crawled to the top bunk, masturbated, and fell asleep. When Valerie woke up, she apologized and told him she just wanted to go home. Wayne was silent for a little bit, eventually pulling over and getting two 12-packs of beer. He drank 18 beers throughout the day. When it came time to turn in for the night, he drank six more. That's a lot of beer. Yeah, I know. I was shocked by that. Yeah, he's just driving. He literally is just driving around drinking beer all goddamn day. 18 beers. 18 beers. And then you have to drink six to fall asleep at night? Yeah. That means you're a bad person. Yeah. (laughs) Before he pulled over for the night, he offered to drop Val off in San Clemente to score some heroin. She declined, obviously not wanting to be stuck in an unknown city, sick and broke. Can't really blame her. Wayne dropped his load the next morning and then told Val that they'd be heading even farther south toward the Mexican border. She screamed that she was sick and he needed to take her back. He screamed at her to quit whining and to shut up. After his drop in Chula Vista, they would turn around and he would take her home. By nightfall, they were heading north when they stopped at a truck stop. Wayne forced himself on Val and she was so sick she couldn't fight back and had to lay there while he raped her. The next day, he acted as if nothing had happened and arranged her a ride home from another trucker. So essentially, he had just decided that she wasn't going to go home until he got the free sex that he wanted. And then once he had, he was like, all right, well, here, go I don't care anymore. Just here, take her. No, what happened was when Wayne was really upset at her, he was yelling things like, do you know how demeaning it is to have to beg a prostitute for sex? He really just wanted someone that would go along with him that he could fuck whenever he wanted. Like, that's literally all he wanted. It didn't matter. So bust out your 60 bucks. Yeah, but he just want, He thought he deserved it for free. She was gone for like a week. She thought she was going to be gone the next day. This guy basically kidnapped her and just happened to hold off on raping her for most of the trip. By November 1998, Wayne was living on a campsite in Trinidad, California and would frequent the local bar where he played pool with one of the bartenders. Nothing seemed too out of the ordinary on November 2nd, 1998 when Wayne walked into Ocean Grove Lounge and ordered his first beer of the day. He arrived around noon and drank until it was dark when he asked the bartender to rent him a room at the attached motel for the night. 
bartender later reported he knew something was wrong when Wayne was visibly not drunk despite drinking all day. Why did he just need a place to stay so he got the room even though he wasn't drunk or did he was he worried about getting in trouble for driving drunk or think he just didn't want to sleep at night or outside that night maybe? I feel like bartenders see a lot of people who drink all day and don't get drunk. This guy just hadn't hadn't seen much I guess. I don't know. It's the way alcoholics are isn't it? He'd made a few offhand jokes about killing himself, so the bartender was worried he was going to go to his room and shoot himself. Instead, he called his brother Rodney looking for advice. They were each other's rocks, and Wayne knew he could trust him. Wayne was audibly distressed and told Rodney he had done bad things, he hurt people, and he needed to know what to do. Rodney drove over and convinced him to turn himself in. The next morning, they headed to the sheriff's office. Rodney recalls, talking to a sheriff's deputy in the lobby where Wayne kept repeating he hurt some people until he asked Rodney if he needed a lawyer. The deputy continued to try and get the story from Wayne. He asked if he was under arrest, and the deputy said he wasn't, but he needed to know what he meant by hurt people. Wayne couldn't explain, but offered to show him and pull the plastic bag from his pocket with what the deputy thought was a raw chicken breast until Wayne turned the bag over and showed him an unmistakable human nipple attached to the flesh. Dude had a titty in his pocket? Yes, sir. Walked into the police station with a woman's left breast in his pocket. And since he couldn't explain how he had hurt people, he needed a visual aid. And I guess the sheriff's deputy immediately got on the phone and called for backup and started screaming, just yelling. According to Rodney, he was yelling at both of them. What was he yelling? Uh, well, I mean, he was pretty freaked out. Hands off the titty? I don't know. Like... No, he definitely commanded and put his hands put his hands in the air, told Rodney to stay in the seat, uh, had the bag in his hand and was staring at it while pointing his gun at Wayne and waiting for another deputy. Just weird shit like that. I mean, he had to be literally shocked. Although Rodney had told Wayne originally to get a lawyer, he was completely unaware of what hurting people meant. He assumed that Wayne had just gotten in a simple fight and maybe punched someone or broken a bone. Once he realized that Wayne had done much more than just hurt people, he went back in and eventually convinced Wayne to tell them the whole story while he waited for his attorney to show up. That's technically the wrong order to do those things in, isn't it? Shouldn't you, like, wait for your lawyer and then tell the story? No, your lawyer's going to tell you to shut the fuck up. Yes, exactly. Yeah, your lawyer's going to say not to say anything, and the cops kind of knew that, too. Yeah, so they really wanted him to not have an attorney present? Yeah, because he, he kept saying because his brother he's like well my brother rodney told me i i need a lawyer while they were in, during his first interview the first interview interview was like 10 minutes long and all he did was kept saying you know i, I would like to get a lawyer and then later they allowed rodney to go talk to him through the glass and rodney tells a story that he was like jesus wayne i didn't know that you were this is what you were coming here to confess i would have told you you know talk to a lawyer first but now that you're here and I'm kind of getting what you did, you should probably tell these people what happened and bring closure to that family. Because he's like, I can't imagine if it was one of my daughters and I was waiting for closure on something like that. And I don't know if he guilt tripped him into it or just kind of convinced him that it was the right thing to do was to tell the people all about it. But was Rodney worried about being implicated in it? too? No, not at all. He had no absolutely nothing. He didn't think he would get implicated at all. Once Wayne started telling his story, he had a hard time stopping. This drew into question his ability to understand what was happening to him, or if he even understood his rights. He was actually Mirandized, like, 
five or six times. That's common. Yeah. They had him sign the paper before he talked, too, that basically says, I'm here on my own free will telling you this without any... Coercion. Coercion. Yeah, was he coming off as mentally stable? He was not. Uh, not especially. When they would ask him questions, like over the next couple of days, when they would ask him questions about certain victims, he would claim to have like a, a fuzziness in his head happening, or he couldn't remember. They'd bring up certain victims, and he'd say like, yeah, maybe I know her. She looks familiar, or I, I can't really recall anything that we did, but they were dead when I was there, so I must have done it. Was that because it's just so many that he was involved in, or he just didn't really care and wanted to get his numbers up? I honestly think he was just trying to give himself an out while still admitting it. Personally, I mean, I think he was trying to claim he remembered less than he did to give himself an out that he was... He still confessed to more than we can prove, though, didn't he? Oh, yeah. So... Not really giving himself an out. No, but he kind of, I think he was thinking that possibly it, it gave him a crutch, not necessarily an out legally, but it gave him a way to write off his crimes in his own head. You think when he, uh, when he first decided to uh, confess or whatever, he was all like gung-ho for it, and after a while he just got tired of the question, so he's like, yeah, maybe. I don't know. He Maybe. He claimed to think it right by god to do this oh yeah that's always the best excuse yeah so he uh he actually was fairly religious and thought that through god that him and the people that had been praying for him to been caught were working their mighty something or other i don't know whatever religious people believe when they think that god did something multiple recorded confessions happened over the next few days wayne told the police a lot of solid information on what had happened to the women and they believed they had him dead to rights Wayne was unburdening himself and told the deputies where they could find the torso girl's thighs and the remains of her breast. He explained that he had cooked her breasts on the stove and saved the grease in a can under the sink. The police collected all of this and 174 more items from his campsite, including a hatchet and a knife that had been used to dismember torso girl. Why did he save the uh, grease? I honestly don't know. I don't think he would even know. I honestly have zero answer for that question. It's just why a weird did thing why that... did you do anything like what he did? He just wanted to do it. Well, I mean, a lot of people might try to eat it after they boil it, right? Well, he didn't even boil it. He just cooked it to get the grease. So he just oh. stuck it in a pan and watched the fat burn off. Oh. Turned into liquid, dumped it into a can, and stuck it under his sink for it, whatever fucking reason. It could be as simple as he. It was grease, and you can't put grease down the drain, so he put it in with all of the bacon grease that he has. During his confessions, different counties began showing up at the station and questioning if he was responsible for their unsolved cases. He does end up providing some solid information on a few cases we discussed, but has a hard time recalling how and when of their deaths. Mostly, he says he can't remember, but it must have been him because he was the only one there. Were these, so some of these we already talked about, but there were even more in addition to what we were already talking about him being responsible for? Yes. Um, people were trying to pin stuff on him, though, that he didn't necessarily or couldn't necessarily be a part of. They were just examining their options because, hey, they have a serial killer that they found. They caught one. One turned himself in, actually. 
Hey guys, we got one! Hooray for us. Okay. Wayne's trial did not begin for six years due to issues with his confessions, him firing his attorney, and his appeal involving his move to a prison in San Bernardino. Jury selection finally started on January 17, 2006, and the trial officially began in April. The prosecution rested on April 12, 2006, much earlier than anyone had anticipated. The judge called a recess for 12 days before the defense called their first witness. Wayne's wives, numerous psychologists, Wayne's church friend, and count- countless experts and doctors from Wayne's past were brought forth as witnesses for his state of mind at the time of the murders. So did all these people help his defense? Like, as in, like, were they trying to say, like, yeah, he was unstable, so you can't really hold him accountable? Is that what they were getting at? Basically, yeah. Did he plead not guilty by reason of insanity, or just not guilty? No, I think he just pleaded not guilty because he was in an emotional state of mind. I don't think he pleaded insanity. This guy's really just a half-asser when it comes to his, uh... That would be more his attorney than him. His attorney actually was a fairly famous guy. I can't remember what he was famous for, but other serial killer... He defended OJ. No, that wasn't him. But, I mean, there is... Most of the time, your plea is going to be what your lawyer thinks is going to work best at trial for you, so... Yeah. They also, uh, the prosecution also did bring in an expert to basically say that he was malingering, that he, uh, yes, that he was like on, because the defense had brought in a, some sort of psychologist and administered the test to see what number he got, and he got like 24 out of 40, and uh, he was deemed not crazy or insane when psychopaths, like, do get higher numbers, but he also said that he, when they brought in their expert, they said something like, yeah, but 50% of the people in prison, he would have a higher score than, and uh, 50, 49%, he would have a lower score than. If he's right in the median, that does mean that there is something there because this is a test among criminals and or something like that. It was really complicated, but they also brought in their own expert and said that he was basically a malingerer and that he knew the difference between right or wrong, and he had an t- intent and motive. The defense rested their case on May 17th, and closing arguments began on June 14th. Prosecution broke down their arguments by pointing to the definition of first-degree murder, showing the pattern with the three surviving victims and the pathologist's testimonies as expert witnesses to how the victims died or suffered. Defense argued that Wayne's actions were the result of genetic flaws, environmental factors, and Wayne himself was a victim of his own mental condition. They try to say he was inbred, basically? No, they're trying to say that he was mentally ill. Oh. And that part of it was from his genetics? Yes, a lot of mental illnesses are genetic. Yes, coming from his mother, because if you remember from the last episode, his mother also had very similar... On June 27, 2006, after seven days of deliberation, the jury announced they had reached a verdict on all four murders. Wayne Adam Ford was found guilty of murder in the first degree. The judge set the penalty phase of trial to begin on July 12th. Between the close of the first trial and the beginning of the second phase, Wayne met a quote-unquote reporter named Victoria Redstall. She claimed to be a documentary filmmaker, but turned out to be a model who tried to take advantage of Wayne. And she did. Uh, the At first, when I first started reading the end chapters of this book, I thought that the author had kind of a little bit of a chip on her shoulder from this woman because they both were at the court when he was getting sentenced. They both had been writing articles and books or 
she had been writing a book. The other lady claimed to be some sort of news reporter, but really she was a model for easy grow bosom bigs or something like that, uh, like a way of natural breast enhancement. That's like the opposite and, of what Wayne was. Well, yeah, and she really just wanted to become famous for something, so she claimed she was a journalist. She went to the jail and visited Wayne and got him to tell all sorts of stuff, claiming that she was going to make a documentary about him and was going to be very favorable in his life. She wrote him love letters and things like that to just basically... She hustled him. Yeah, she hustled him. And then she still never really released her documentary on the guy. Her, His brother, his mom, and uh, his dad, Gene, all refused to talk to her, but they talked to the lady writing this book. So... At first, I was a, thought it was a chip on her shoulder, but this lady's kind of a turd person. She, oh, oh, okay. Well, it sounds like she's definitely a manipulative, manipulative person, one way or the other. And also, one of the uh, reasons I want to say that this took so long was because in September of that year, before he turned himself in, the governor passed a new law. And it was a serial killer single trial bill or something like that was some senator put it forth and it passed so that anytime there was a serial case, multiple counties and things like that could get together and bring it as one case. So there were five things they wanted to hit him with, or maybe it was four charges of first degree murder that they wanted to hit him with from three or four different counties. So they kind of needed to all team up and work together to get one case. This was the first case that they tried it on i believe so yeah so it was just basically a hot mess to figure out oh yeah for sure did it work out pretty well in the end for him Uh, it depends on how you think but yes for wayne it did not work out because he was sentenced to death yeah and so yeah he was sentenced to death and he is still sitting on death row in san quentin state prison fuck that guy when is he gonna die he does not have a death date set they haven't executed someone since 99, so more than likely he's going to die by natural causes. Yeah, an expensive natural cause is death. But he wants to be punished. That was one of the things that he tried to get across when he was confessing, was that he was confessing because he felt like he wanted, he needed to be punished. He still went through all of his appeals. He didn't yeah. waive his right to appeal, so I guess he doesn't want to be punished that bad. Yeah, he could have been the last guy that they put to death in 1999 if he'd have just stayed off of his... Ho- his oh, no. trial was in six. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Still, if we if he hadn't if he hadn't appealed, we could have him. He would have him uh, zapped up by now. I mean, he did, what he did was fucked up. What he did was brutal. Does he belong on death row? Absolutely. Katie, well, what do you think of this guy? Well, how? What's your total take from this? He's a shitty person. Do you mean like mentally? Yeah. Like, uh, do you think that his mental illness played a lot of a large factor in him murdering as many as six people? people no, I think people? he hated women because his mother left him at an early age when she, I guess it wasn't that early, but when she went to India and basically left him after the divorce, I think he said, okay, well, fuck women. And then got and angry. Yeah. Okay. I think got angry and did this. I think we can all agree that we wish his mother had taken him with her. Yeah, probably. Well, all right, guys. I guess that's going to end it for us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, and on Twitter at fourcornerscrime. 
And give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. Check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. F-O-U-R, cornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a full episode list uh, to send us ideas for an episode or to get your free sticker from our merch store. Enter the code Bingo Bango at checkout, and we will ship it out to you 100% for free. So, have a good week. Thanks for joining us for this super fucked up episode. Yeah, we'll talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. You should join that real hot girl shit squad, Katie, with spit some of your flows. Let's hear one.